So good morning, everyone. I'm Ness Hughes, and I'm part of the ministry team here. We're going to be doing things a little bit um, differently today. Mel and I are actually going to team preach this morning. The first half of the talk, I'm going to be walking us through the big picture of the passage. And then Mel is going to come up and narrow in on some of the definitions. We're teaching it this way together because we think this is an important passage, but one that's often been misunderstood. In fact, before I was a Christian, in my early 20s, I thought submission was dumb in general. If submission is putting yourself under the authority of someone else, then I thought it was especially dumb when it came to marriage. I thought it was archaic and showed that the church had not progressed with modern society where men and women had finally been declared as equal. Then, Neil and I um, were already engaged and through a set of personal circumstances, we both came to understand the gospel. I became alive in Christ as I learned of God's love for me. And I decided to call Jesus my Lord and Saviour And having received the Holy Spirit, I was filled with an understanding of the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice and the reality of my salvation in him. And once Neil and I had submitted our lives to Christ, we voluntarily, joyfully approached our marriage with an intention to submit ourselves to each other. Having seen submission as such a negative thing in the past, we had come to understand the beauty, the power, the goodness of sacrificial love as shown to us in Jesus. And I hope with my time with you today to return to that beautiful revelation I had in those first few months of my faith when I finally understood with clarity what chapter 5 in Ephesians verse 1 talks about. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is not a sermon all about marriage, but instead a look at these household codes, that's the husband, wife, father, children, uh, master, slaves bit, We're going to look at that through the lens of a spirit-filled life of all believers, a life for all of us that is characterized by our love for each other, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And to do this, I'm going to think through two things. First, the context, that's the flow of the letter, and how these household codes relate to the things that Paul has already said. And secondly, I'm going to look at the big picture Paul is teaching them a way of walking with each other that makes Christ the ultimate authority. You'll hear me refer to uh, the passage today as household codes, and I just want to clarify what that means. Paul is taking a common household unit in Ephesus and an existing literary form, and he's redefining the intimate household relationships to reflect their new life in Christ. The household, the Christian household in Ephesus, may still resemble the first century pagan household in its structure. However, 
It is not to be governed by the norms of the day. That is the former way of life. Paul is teaching them as they imitate God, to pick up the language from last week, how to walk in Christ all the way into the detail of their household relationships. This is for their good and the good of the watching world as their new lives point to God's work of redemption and unification. All that said, let's now look at the context of these household codes in the letter to the Ephesians. The passage we're looking at today begins with, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, this is not actually a new sentence, but a continuation of a sentence that begins in verse 18. It's actually written grammatically this way. I know it's small, but you get the idea. Paul loves a long sentence, doesn't he? (laughs) Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing and making music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so it goes on. Can you see how the Spirit-filled life is to be characterised by our speaking, our singing, our thanksgiving, and our submitting? The submitting to one another bit is connected back up to the spirit-filled life of all Christians. And further to that, these verses hang off verse 15. Be careful how you walk. Our series is called Walking in Christ, and over the past few weeks, we've seen that in this second half of the letter, Paul is very concerned with our walking Once saved in Christ, he calls the Ephesians to walk in a distinctively Christian way as they continue to live in a pagan world. So they are to walk carefully, filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 21 links backwards and it starts now to point forward to the household codes. Colossians, which has a parallel passage to this one here in Ephesians, puts it this way. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In everything they do, they're to do it in Christ as the Spirit inspires. Walk this way in Christ. Walk this way in church. Walk this way in differently to the Gentiles. Walk this way in your households. Their careful walking in Christ is not a compartmental deal. And likewise for us, right? We need to honestly consider and regularly examine our godliness at home. Now, I'm going to get to the specific husband-wife, father-child, master-slave relationships in a moment. But this point is relevant to all of us, whatever household dynamic we live in. I suspect that it's within the household and the intimate relationships we do life with where often our worst choices are made. 
We commonly give our best when we're out, at work, at church, small group, the shops even. And then through exhaustion or perhaps just taking people that you live with for granted, we give our worst at home. God takes seriously our Christian living in our households, even if you are able to keep it under wraps. Living one way in public and another at home is one of the most dangerous expressions of hypocrisy. And if you attend here every week, online or in person, and yet show no consideration at all for the way you treat people that you live with and do life with, your spouse, flatmate, kids, extended family, grandparents, grandchildren, then it's time to examine your heart. Are you walking with Christ, in Christ? And in varying degrees, the reality is we all have some work to do here. Of all the aspects of being in ministry, health checking and attending to my godliness at home has been the thing I've needed to return to most often. Not because of gross misconduct, you'll be pleased to know now, But just through the busyness of life, there are times I've been neglectful or just inattentive. And as brothers and sisters, we need to help each other with this. It's hard. Find people you can be honest with and ask for help if you need it. To use the language of Ephesians, don't continue on in darkness now that you've been called to live in the light. Find out what pleases the Lord. It's not about being perfect but being careful how you walk, filled with the Spirit as we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Point two. I'm going to focus now on the husband-wife, father-child, master-slave relationships where Paul teaches them within a first-century framework to walk with each other in a way that makes Christ the ultimate authority. These relationships are presented as couplets and they're interconnected, aren't they? They're linked together. And to fully appreciate this point, we've got to get our minds into the Greco-Roman household. It was not the nuclear family with equal rights that exists today. Unlike our focus on the individual, the household back then was the foundation of the state and the members each gained their identity from belonging to that household. It included extended networks, wife, children, extended family, aunts and uncles, tenants sometimes, and slaves. Slaves ranging all the way from willing workers to stolen, sold, and bought people. The householder was given power to rule with intimidation and violence and had full authority as well as some responsibility for all the household members. They, in turn, depended on him for provision and security. These relationships were incredibly open to abuse. Women, children and slaves were subject to the householder. Apart from God, this unequal power could be used or misused at the whim of the householder. With all that in mind, let's now hear the stunning picture that Paul teaches about households under Christ, 
God is interested in a new humanity, a new way that is not based on power, but sacrificial love, the sacrificial love of Christ. They're each called to reciprocal servanthood under the sole lordship of Jesus, equality that's never been seen before, as each member of the household submits to Christ, walks in Christ. They're each to be characterised by their loving Christian service for one another. So wives, children and slaves are acknowledged, they're seen, they're ethically responsible persons, significant, invited to express their Christian love within the household. They're recognised and they have a role in the kingdom. Husbands are to love and respect their wives to the extent that they're willing to lay their lives down for them. There's no space for abuse here, a point that Mally's going to make more strongly in his talk. Fathers are not to exercise their legal right to physically discipline their children, which they had at the time, but instead treat them with kindness and teach them the way of Christ, so unexpected in that day. Masters are to treat their slaves well, not to increase productivity, but because Jesus is Lord of them both. The attention was usually on the master and how he was to rule, but here the unprecedented priority is to acknowledge the good work of the slave, as if they are working for Christ himself, work that will be rewarded in heaven, we're told. The model and the motivating force for all of these relationships is Christ himself. And though our households today are legally and structurally different from that time, our relationships still vulnerably interconnect. There is intimacy between husband and wife as they become one flesh, trusting that as they expose themselves bodily and with lifelong commitment, that the other will be trustworthy with that love. Children depend on parents for instruction, guidance, loving acceptance, and often just a lift to the station. Slaves rely upon a fair master who'll pay them appropriately and portion the work reasonably and recognise their dignity. I don't have time to talk about how we understand this slave-master relationship in our modern context, but if you'd like to ask a question about that, then we can address it in Q&A. As for then, so it is for now. Our voluntary submission to the needs of others is an example of the self-sacrificing love of Christ, which is to characterise every Christian household in every era. Because relationships that are defined by godly love and mutual submission point to God's work of redemption and unification. Now, every time I hear a sermon on this passage, I find myself asking, what does that look like in the modern context? And I'm just going to share one very quick story from my own household, and then I'm going to hand over to Mal. There have been seasons in my marriage, especially when the kids were little, we were just getting through the day. We weren't lovingly adoring each other. We were just trying to make it fed, clothed, functional in the day before we crashed into bed for a broken night's sleep and the next one rolled around again. 
And I'm sure that both of us would say that there, weren't, that there were times in those days where we weren't particularly happy or fulfilled. It wasn't loveless, but we weren't setting things on fire. Just high-fiving, tag-teaming in the hallway. And I'm sure that in those moments, the world would have justified our searching for something more fulfilling, something more romantic, something that felt more satisfying. But I have given my self-sacrificing love to Neil, and he has given it to me. It is our self-giving love, our submitting to one another, our promise to commit to our oneness instead of our individual needs that keeps us together. Submitting for me has not been about giving in to him over small things, but a general giving up of my mindset that I think of myself only. Instead, I think of us. I think of Neil, and Neil has done that for me. Now, we don't settle for that kind of marriage. You'll be pleased to know Jesus makes us alive. He brings joy and life and love, and so in him we continue to grow in these things. But either way, in the awesome days and the very mundane days, we're submitted to each other, anchored in Jesus and his self-giving love for us. And this is what we promised each other when we got married 16 years ago. I'm going to hand over to Mal now. There's going to be a minute between us, a pause to give you time to send in any questions that have related to the things that I've said today. The number's going to be on the screen. But I'll leave you by saying once more, be careful how you walk. Be filled by the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is a new way of living with each other in Christ that makes him the ultimate authority. Well, thanks, Ness. It's a real privilege to be here with you looking a bit further at this passage in light of what Ness has just highlighted to us all. I'd like to spend a, a short amount of time narrowing in and building upon what has already been said and clear up any misunderstanding that people may have between the twin issues of submission and headship. Uh, then finally, think a bit more about what this looks like in practice. Sadly, it does need to be said at the outset here that many people have used this good teaching of Paul uh, that he gives to the household to perpetrate and justify abuse, especially within the household. By this I mean anyone who uses these words or actions to imitate, belittle or control a family member has completely misunderstood what this passage is saying and shows a lack of understanding of it. Let me say that again because this is really important. It is completely wrong to use any of this passage before us today to perpetrate or justify abuse. Uh, if you have been abused or are currently having passages like this to justify abuse, please come and see me or Ness or anyone in the pastoral team, uh, either after the service or contact us via email, as we would dearly love to speak to you and help you here. In addition, for those who come to this passage having a fixed opinion, please try and listen today with fresh ears and not uh, with the way that this passage has been interpreted by some in the past. While these terms are directed to those who are married, if you are here today and you are single, it is important for you to hear this as well. 
especially if one day you hope to be married or you hope to support those who are married in their marriages. Well, with these few things in mind, let me pray and then we'll get into looking at a bit more closely at this great word here. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for all that we've already seen in it. And we pray that as we continue to look closely at submission and headship, that you'll help us to have a correct understanding, that your spirit will work amongst us and help to change us so we understand it according to the ways you want it to be understood. And through this, help us to live this way, either in our marriages or encourage those who are married in this way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I think I'm running this, aren't I? So I will just get up to where we are. Here we go. Oh, I didn't get the top bits changing like you did, Ness. Sorry. The first guiding principle of this passage is Christ and the church. See the language there in verses 22, in 23, 24, and finally in 25. In fact, throughout the passage, we've seen that the relationship between the husband and the wife are to be a reflection of Christ and his church. So any definition of terms here when we're coming to look at submission and headship needs to be seen through this framework. Paul is suggesting that the relationship between the husband and the wife reflect that of Christ and the church. Submission needs to be seen in the context of how the church submits to Christ. And headship needs to be seen in the context of how Christ is the head of the church. This needs to be the guiding principle as we approach this passage, otherwise we will get it wrong. But as Ness has already pointed out, the overarching theme in the introduction to this section is verse 15. Be careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. And then again, further along in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Headship and submission come out of the need to live life carefully and wisely in our households as we reflect the relationship with Christ and his church. If we think back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, God's will is to bring all things under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this includes our households. With this in mind, let's focus in a bit more on submission. What is submission? Well, Richard Coakin, who's an English minister, defines submission in his commentary on Ephesians as arranging yourself under someone else's authority. And notice that the passage starts out today by saying in verse 21 that we're submit to, we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So submission is mutual. It's not exclusive to the wives, but rather husband to wife and wife to husband. You see, our relationships with each other in the household must be out of reverence for Christ. The reverence language here is associated with a fearful respect. We must recognize that Christ is our Lord and he is the one who desires us, who desires for us to submit to each other in this way. So when we submit to each other out of reverence for Christ, we acknowledge the dignity and equality of all people in the household, but also the different responsibilities that God has given us in the household. We must treat people accordingly, knowing we will give an account to how Christ to Christ as to how we've done this. Secondly, we see that submission is voluntary. Arranging yourself under someone's authority must never be enforced. It's not it's certainly not oppressive servitude. 
Anyone who has used this passage to uh, enforce or force a woman or a man to submit in any way really has misunderstood this passage. This is especially important when the word submission in verse 22 is connected with wives. Now, in the Greek here, the word submission is not, or submit, is not repeated in verse 22. It's not a new or different command from verse 21, but rather verse 22 qualifies who the woman must submit to. That is, a woman is to submit to their own husband. Notice it's not men in general, but rather Paul is speaking here to women who are married. A wife is to submit to her own husband as they do to the Lord. The reason for this is that Christ has put the husband as the head of the household. Can you see there in verse 23? As Christ is the head of the church. Now, it's hard to finish this section on submission without addressing what headship means. So let me park submission over here and move on to my next point of headship, and then I'll come back and tie it together. So headship is all about being responsible. What does it mean for a man to be the head of the wife? Well, I think this is what verse 25 to 33 spells out. The first aspect of headship is seen there in verse 25. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. A husband expresses his responsibility by loving his wife. A husband is to love his wife like he loves no other woman. How did Christ love the church? He gave his life up for the church. Headship is about being self-sacrificial of your wants and your desires for the good of your wife. In other words, a husband must be putting his wife before himself, acting in the best interests of his wife, loving his wife more than he loves himself. This is what it means to be self-sacrificial. But the second aspect of headship is seen in verses 26 to 27. A husband needs to be serving his wife by leading her to the word, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word in order to present her holy and blameless. This means being responsible for the spiritual leadership of the family, first and foremost, caring spiritually for your wife. A husband needs to be helping his wife grow as a Christian, to encourage her in the faith, to read the Bible with her and encourage her to be reading God's word by herself and encouraging her to come to church and being involved in the like, to be praying for his wife. The third aspect of headship is seen in verses 28 to 29. A husband needs to physically and mentally protect his wife. He is to love his wife more than he loves his own body. These are the verses that show that headship is never, ever able to be used to justify domestic violence. That is, the husband must never treat his wife with physical, emotional, spiritual, or verbal abuse. That means never manipulating, never coercing, never forcing or threatening, whether by words or actions or any other means. I mean, a husband wouldn't beat himself up or abuse himself in this way. And this passage gives no indication that, that he should therefore do this and treat his wife this way. In fact, it's the opposite, isn't it? The husband must love his wife more than he loves his own body. So for a husband, headship is being responsible to love your wife more than himself, more than yourself, to lead 
lead his wife to God's word and to protect her physically and mentally. When I told this to some non-Christians doing a marriage preparation course, the woman said to me, I would be willing to submit to a husband who lives in this way. Which brings me back to my first point of submission. It is this type of person, this type of headship that a wife is called to submit to. One who loves her even more than his own life. One that desires for her to grow in her relationship with the living God. And one that protects her mind, her body and her soul. One that loves and does not dominate, seeing their relationship as of equal value. One that is self-sacrificial, so doesn't think about what he thinks is best for himself, but what is best for his wife, first and foremost. The obvious question to ask here is, what if my husband or wife is not like this? Uh, If there's no abuse, but maybe they're not believers. Well, I think 1 Corinthians helps us here, chapter 7, verse 14, that says this. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. In other words, there is something special about trying to live this way, even if your husband and wife is not. Again, uh, 1 Corinthians 7.16 indicates that this can have a positive effect on your spouse's salvation here. But it's important to say these are instructions for individuals in the relationship to hear, not for one spouse to enforce on the other. Okay, I just want to make that clear. Rather, the challenge is for you men, are you leading your wives spiritually in this way? Are you loving them more than your own body? Are you washing them through the word? Do you desire to see your wife grow and excel as a follower of Jesus? And then wives, are you submitting to your husband as to the Lord? Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, anyone who wants to be first in the kingdom of God must be servant of all. And husbands, it starts first with our wives, and wives' submission is all about being humble. It's all about reflecting Christ, isn't it? Now, you may ask, well, what does this look like in a relationship? Well, let me try and illustrate from my relationship with Heather. Just remembering that we're far from perfect, but we try. For me, uh, it means that I desire to know Heather intimately. I want to know what she's thinking and feeling in any circumstance. I desire to protect her and uphold her so that she feels loved and valued. I encourage her to be reading the scriptures and come to church. I wish I was better at reading the Bible regularly and praying with her. This is something we continue to work on. We talk about sermons together. And we talk about, uh, and I value her learning and her input to me as much as I hope that she values the input that I give to her. I never want her to feel a hint of dominance by me. So I want to ensure that she has access to everything and that I'm open and honest in all my dealings with her. But the big question becomes when there is a difference of opinion or a decision needs to be made. And as I said before, the honest truth is we're not perfect at this, but we do try and follow the principles of this passage. So when making a decision about something, the principle of headship that we follow is not necessarily that I make the decision, but rather it's my responsibility that we ensure a decision is made. What does this look like with Heather and myself? Well, the answer is it differs according to the decision. 
There have been times when after she, uh, she has told me that the way, way she thinks about a situation, you see, we both, both bring our different skills, experiences and understanding to the discussion. So it's important that both of us ex- express what we're thinking in any given situation. But after we've discussed this, she tells me that she wants me to make the decision. She wants me to lead our family and in this way submits to the decision that I make. Sometimes the decision that I make here is for the benefit of her rather than mine. Other times I've made a decision that might not be her choice, but she's accepted and supported and encouraged me in it. She's submitted to me, but knows that I have her best interest in mind at all the time. But then there's been other times when I've said to her, I want you to make the decision for our family on behalf of us as well. In this instance, she submits to my desire for her to make the decision for our family and knows that because submission is mutual, I will submit myself to her decision, no matter what the outcome of the decision, which means I will support her and stand beside her as she does. Headship does not mean that you make all the decisions, nor that you are somehow omniscient in every situation. But it does mean that we as husbands have the responsibility to patiently keep working through the process until there is agreement. It might be that you get to the point in uh, decision-making in in the process where there's no real right or wrong, when there needs to be resolution and it's not being arrived at. And so to bring resolution, the husband leads, the husband shows his headship by being self-sacrificial here, by loving the wife more than his own body, more than his own desires, and so lovingly sacrifices his wants and desires in this situation. It's his example to follow Christ here. Friends, God has given us each other, so we need to discuss these things. We need to pray about these things and trust in one another in the responsibilities that God has given us for our households. It's my responsibility to lead Heather without taking away her dignity, her equality, her self-determination, nor her God-given talents in a loving way for the good of our family and our lives together as we submit to each other and as we submit to Christ. I think this is what it means for me to be her head. I guess I want to exhort you that this picture of submission uh, and headship can be and is a beautiful picture. Yet it has been abused in the past and I hope you can see that this is a misunderstanding of this passage. And we need to make sure that this does not happen in the future. But if understood and applied appropriately, it can really foster a wonderful marriage. At the end of our day, however, our marriages are meant to point beyond ourselves. See how verse 32 ends. Marriages in the end point back to Christ and his church. Now, for those of us who are married, we know that our marriages are far from perfect, don't we? And nor will they be perfect until we're, nor will we be perfect until we're in heaven. However, as we love our wives, as we love ourselves, as our wives respect their husbands, God willing, we can show to this world a wonderful picture of what Christ and the church looks like within our marriages. Well, friends, let me briefly conclude. Submission is mutual, voluntary, arranging yourself under someone else's authority. Headship is the responsibility to love, to spiritually lead and physically protect. Put together, they represent the picture of Christ and her church, 
and the wisest way for a husband and wife to be living their married lives. It doesn't mean that we'll get it right all the time. We're still sinful. We're not in heaven yet. However, this is where grace and forgiveness comes in. But if you apply these principles in your marriage, I'm confident it will enhance your relationship and your intimacy, not only with one another, but also with God. For those who are married and would like to work on these things, start by going back to the passage and reading and praying about it together. Start speaking with each other about it. If you need clarification, please come and see me or Ness or anyone on the pastoral team. We'd love to help you with this. But making a change in your marriage like this needs to start, but then it will take time. And so be willing to take the time to work on this with each other. Uh, We're starting an equipping season in October this year. And during this time, there'll be a specific marriage course to help you focus on your marriage. Let me urge you that if you, uh, in this situation, sign up to the course. But let me conclude by just quickly speaking to those who are single. Friends, if you are single here, reflect on how you would do this if you became married, but also how, because you are not married, you can continue to serve the Lord. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.32, you have more ability to think about the things of the Lord and how to please him by not being married, as Paul did, who was also single. So let me urge you to go back and to think about this if you are in that situation. But friends, for all of us, we need God's Spirit to help us to understand this. We need God's Spirit to help us to apply this to our lives. So let me pray now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we recognize that there is a lot in this passage that we need to be continuing to think about and applying to our lives. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will strengthen us for this task, to live and to walk in your ways. We pray this for your sake and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Mal and Ness, it may not surprise you that this phone has pretty much melted down over the last 15 minutes while people have texted many questions and we're not really going to get anywhere near them. But we've had a number of questions uh, from people uh, asking for some kind of help or some kind of encouragement when their spouse is not a Christian. And so, so this framework uh, that we have in the text here is, is not necessarily you know something that their spouse is going to sign up to how does it how does this land for a person in a marriage where their spouse is not a christian yeah i think um as a christian person in that marriage you still want to live out what you have understood about a sacrifice and love i think that in itself would be a witness to your partner um and i think it's really important to in your either Uh, marriage preparation or during your marriage to be speaking about how you um, want to be married to each other to either way whether or not he or she is a Christian or not but to establish mutual love mutual respect um, and a relationship that understands that you will be offering sacrificial love and that you hope that they'll be careful with you as you offer that to them. I'd still want to really lay down some groundwork, really chat together about how you're going to love one another. Am I still on? You're still on. Just to add to that, um, I think that uh, marriages, whether you're married to a Christian or not a Christian, just take a lot of work. Uh, I think uh, one of the things to do would be to sign up to the equipping course and that would be a great place to start. 
I don't think it's wrong to see a counsellor when uh, to talk about your marriage, not because you've got something wrong in your marriage, but you, you want it to be firing on all cylinders. And so go get help uh, in that way. And I think within those contexts, that's when you start to talk about these biblical principles and how you can actually start to apply them in these, these circumstances as well. Um, uh, how about I just send this one to you, Ness? Do I have to submit when my husband is not loving me like Jesus loves the church? Can I just say that from the outset, I think we're not talking about an extreme situation where perhaps he's being um, worse than just not a loving head of the family. He's being abusive. And I think in that situation, um, you need help. And uh, and I'm, what I'm going to say isn't applying to that situation. But, uh, yes, I think that we, we're not called to submit to him because he is going to be loving back. We, we submit because we've submitted our lives to Christ and we actually value others above ourselves. There's lots of um, verses in the scriptures that talk about that. And, I mean, as you referenced in Mark, um, not to be the first but to be servant of all. That applies to you, um, whatever the situation is, um, of course, with the caveat in mind. Yeah. Mal, um, question for you, I think. To what extent is the slave master submission relevant to work? Yeah, I think I, I think there are some uh, principles that are, are really different, uh, but there are some principles that are, are the same. One of the the big overarching themes of this passage is uh, is within the household. This household has suddenly become Christian, and what does it mean to actually go to church in that slave master relationship? What does it mean to be sitting next to a Christian? Uh, and then coming home back to the household uh, and and the principles of being able to work as if you're working for the Lord, I think is a great principle that flows over into the workplace. Uh, I think the way that we as employers need to treat our employees is with love and respect. I think there's principles that can uh, go over there. But I do not think uh, that the idea of being in slavery is something uh, that you can necessarily bring across to the workplace. Uh, as Ness said, there are bigger issues involved there that we want to address as Christians, and if you want to talk with her more about that, she'd love to talk with you more about that. Um, in general, it's, this passage is about what you do with power, and so I think in the workplace that is something to think through in a broad sense. Questions? I've got a whole bunch of questions here about parenting, about unequal marriages, but we're going to have to save them for some other time. So um, thank you both very much. Uh, and Camilla's going to come now and lead us in prayer.